in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. All right, well, thanks for being here with us today, guys. Last week, we asked the question, can women preach, can women teach, and can women have authority over men? The evangelical church has tended to look to two passages that you may be familiar with that seem to limit women's roles in leadership in the church. But we wanted to first come at it from the other side. And so if you have not, I know I've said this in the emails, uh, if you have not listened to last week's, it's a much fuller exposition of that sort of positive side of, of where we're going to be coming from. So please uh, go to the podcast, go to the website, uh, find last week's sermon and listen through that. Uh, but if you missed it, I wanted to at least briefly set up the foundation so that we can start on that note. So instead of saying, hey, there are these, there are these two verses that, that seem to limit women's ability to lead, we wanted to say, well, what did women actually do in the Bible, and then how was that perceived by those around? So did they teach? Did they lead? Did they preach? Did they sanction Scripture? Did they reprove men? Did they reprove or correct apostles, correct their theology? Did they lead house churches? And Scripture is abundantly clear that women do. Women have had held virtually every leadership position in the Old and New Testaments that you could name. Now, naturally, of course, it wasn't a 50-50 split, given the society at the time, given the fact that most women were not allowed to uh, be educated or literate, but there were certainly women filling all of those positions. Now, I myself, in the last year or so, have changed my view on this issue, and what you're hearing is sort of my adjusted view, and I've changed my view. There's a number of reasons. Largely, though, it is this, what I'm going to share now that women held all of these positions in Scripture, and this to me is a smoking gun, that never once does the Bible take the tone or the approach that I used to when talking about these issues, that a certain maybe tribe you could say today takes. Never once does the Bible say, oh, that's too bad. It's so sad that, you know, all the men were slacking off that in this town of 10 or 15,000 or of the people of Israel with a million or whatever, that there's not a single man that was capable of doing this work. Uh, they were, you know, to use modern speak, they were playing video games in their mom's basement. So sad, 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 one of the women had to step up and take on the leadership. If only a man had been present. And there's a whole school of thought that talks like this. Not once does the Bible say this, hint at it. There's no tone of this at all. So those women, like Miriam that we talked about, Huldah, Deborah, even Esther, who we didn't get to last week, they had the highest positions of leadership you can imagine from sanctioning the very scripture that you are still reading in your Bibles to this day to being governmental, military, and religious leaders of Israel. And in the New Testament, we have Phoebe, who taught scripture over men, the carrier and the first expositor of the letter of the Romans to the Romans. We have Priscilla. She was an absolute standout. She reproves and corrects uh, Apollos, who Paul has you know, this sort of like uh, imposter syndrome in front of. He calls him a super apostle. And here Priscilla is like, that's no super apostle. He's wrong. She pulls him aside and corrects a, a male apostle. And then he takes that correction and goes on to keep having an effective ministry. Junia, a leader among leaders of the early apostles, Paul, uh, Paul calls her outstanding or a leading, a sort of a preeminent one. It was so scandalous to the early church later on, right? So sort of the, the male-dominated society around them eventually sept, uh, completely crept into the church. And the fact that Junia was called a female apostle was so scandalous that some of the scribes later on added an S to her name to make it a male name. But as we've dug up the earliest uh, manuscripts, it's very clear that that's a woman. 
Lydia, leader and host of the church at Philippi. Uh, Mary of Bethany, who sits among, you know, of course, the, you know, this Mary has chosen the, the better of the two paths, right? She's the one sitting among the men and being a fellow learner among the male disciples. Mary Magdalene, commissioned by the risen Lord himself to be the first person in human history to declare over men the truth of the resurrection. She's declaring, she's preaching, she's sharing the good news of the resurrection, and Jesus himself is the one who gives her this commission to go share this with the disciples. And then, of course, not to mention Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, the, two most, the two characters that speak most alike in the entire New Testament are Jesus and James. We've talked about this before, if you've heard those sermons. The two people with the most similar vocabulary who talk with the same themes, always talking about uh, you know, the rich being humbled and the, the oppressed being made wealthy and all, all of the sort of tables turning. Jesus and James cannot stop talking like this, and they get it directly from Mary, their mom, who in Luke, I think it's, it's in the first few chapters of Luke, the Magnificat, maybe Luke 1 or Luke 2, you see Mary's great song, her great Magnificat, and that's exactly what she talks about. So you see James and Jesus clearly, uh, not only, it's just remarkable, they have the same words, and it makes sense that they'd be brothers and raised in the same home, and they get it from their mother. What changed my view on this is that not once in any of these stories, any of these women's stories, their deeds, their amazing service, the only thing that they are given is praise for their work. They're given nothing but praise from their male apostles for doing this work. Absolutely glowing remarks. None of this, ah, but they stepped outside the bounds. I guess it needed to happen. It was a pragmatic solution, but they sort of stepped outside the bounds. Or they had uh, pulpit envy. Or uh, they're obsessed with influence. Or they're narcissists. None of that stuff. No, this is the work of the church, and women stepped up to do that work of the church, and they were the best ones for it. Or they were even the ones chosen or recognized as apostles in doing it. So let me ask you, does Scripture contradict itself? Does Scripture contradict itself? Many of you know that there are about two passages that seem to directly, flatly, and just baldly contradict every single one of those examples. Two passages that seem to disallow all of those examples that we just gave. And shockingly, those passages are from Paul, who, if there are any apostle, any leader in the New Testament who is in cahoots with more of those women, that list that I just gave, if there's anyone who is sort of championing them and commissioning them and supporting those women more than anyone else, it's Paul. So what on earth, right? We get these two passages that seem to limit women, but the very one who's sort of championing them, commissioning them, sending them is Paul himself. So what is going on? So let me read our text from Paul, and I encourage you to let the cognitive dissonance, the sort of static in your brain, just start to build, right? Just let it build and hold both of these in tension. Listen to this. It will not, it will jar your ears. This is from Paul. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. <laughs> I always laugh. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. So again, let the cognitive dissonance, this sort of static build, that Paul, who on getting out of prison, goes to stay at the church in Lydia's home, and the brothers are gathered there, it says, in her home, under her hosting and her leadership. Paul, who invites the church planter, church, church planter Phoebe, where she helps lead the church at Sancre, 
He invites her to carry the letter of the Romans to the Romans and then to be the first to exposit and teach and, yes, preach its meaning. Paul, who calls Junia one of the most outstanding uh, preeminent of the early apostles, that's the same term he gives himself, apostle. He's calling Junia one of the preeminent sort of leaders, maybe top five, top ten early apostles. This is the same Paul. And this is the same Paul who just a few chapters earlier than this example I just read, he is giving instructions precisely about women speaking in church. And it's very matter-of-fact, humdrum, and normal. He just happens to be giving instructions about women speaking in church, but it's just assumed that women are doing this. They're speaking in church. Uh, So he's uh, like, what on earth is going on? He's talking about women speaking in church, and then he says women be silent in the churches. But he's just talking about, hey, you know when women give instructions or or preach or or prophesy in front of the church, uh, this is what's to happen. So what is going on with this? So when Scripture, even the same author within Scripture, seems to flatly contradict themselves, it's not Scripture that's contradicting itself. It's normally our deficiency. When Scripture seems to flatly contradict itself, it's not that Scripture is contradicting itself. It's that we are missing something. We are separated by 2,000 years of language and cultural differences, and we don't get it. And so if, if the same person, Paul, within the space of a few chapters is saying completely opposite things, maybe the reason we think they're opposite is because we are filtering it through our own language and cultural lens. And so what's sad is for too many churches, they build their theology of this issue on, on women in leadership. They, they build their theology on this passage and another passage, on two small sections of verses or two small passages. But in many other areas, we do not build our theology on one or two verses. We build them on the entirety of the Bible, the entirety of Scripture. So we have all sorts of instances of one or two really, really confusing verses that seem to contradict the rest of Scripture. Have you ever been reading and you're like, that seems strange and bizarre, and it seems to contradict everything else in Scripture? Uh, We don't build our theology around them. Uh, We respect them, but we realize that we need to build our theology on the entirety of Scripture. One example is that we do not baptize people on behalf of the dead. So it seems in 1 Corinthians, the same book we're talking about, it seems like that church had a practice of baptizing living people in a kind of substitution for people who had already died. And we just have to throw up our hands and say, you know what? Nowhere else in the New Testament does that happen. The early church didn't do that. Maybe this is just something bizarre happening in Corinth. Uh, Maybe some people got the plague and died really quick and didn't have a chance to get baptized, and they just made the best of it and baptized living people on their behalf. Who knows? But you know what? We don't do that. We do not make a practice of baptizing the living on the behalf of the dead. It's one verse. It doesn't agree with the rest of Scripture. It seems bizarre and strange. We don't have the whole story, so we don't build our theology on it. Another is that uh, from James, we do not think that somebody who saves another soul from being lost will automatically be saved themselves, right? We, if you bring someone back from wandering or being lost, we don't think that's an automatic pass on your soul. We don't think that maybe, it, it seems like James might be saying that, but he must not be because scripture doesn't contradict itself and the rest of scripture is clear on this, right? You can teach someone true things without necessarily being a believer yourself. And another one that I touched on last week is head coverings, right? A lot of the church has been confused by this, that in 1 Corinthians 11, we're all, it's, all these are from Corinthians. Paul, uh, I guess, left a lot of things kind of confusing in 1 Corinthians. Um, in 1 Corinthians 11, he tells women to wear head coverings. 
And so a lot of the church has been confused about this, uh, and they have warned them for this reason. But what's interesting is we do not build our theology on a single verse, because if you dig in a little bit, you learn from the Old Testament and the rest of the New Testament that all of the other women in Scripture did not wear head coverings, okay? The Israelite women in the Old Testament, the Hebrew women, the Egyptian women, they're not wearing head coverings. And in the New Testament, all of the other believers, right, both around Israel and in the, the broader part of the Roman Empire, are not wearing head coverings. Yet, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells the Corinthian women, remember, he doesn't write these letters thinking that 2,000 years later, a bunch of English speakers are going to be interpreting them. He writes these letters to the people he's writing them to. He has no notion at all that this will necessarily be read 2,000 years from now. And so he writes to the Corinthian women, wear a head covering. Uh, and now we don't understand fully why. There's a really strong indication that Corinth, this specific city, that moral women wore head coverings, that it had been that way for hundreds of years, but that uh, ladies of the night, people who are sort of involved in temple cult prostitution and other things, uh, they would wear their hair uncovered, and that they were the only women in Corinth who would wear their hair uncovered. So he says, hey, yeah, you're free in Christ, but you're not free to take off the head covering because you know what that says in your broader culture and you're being a stumbling block to everyone around you. So keep the head covering. But he was not telling Roman women to wear a head covering. He was not telling the Hebrew women in the Jerusalem church to wear head coverings. So this is another example. None of you, we don't encourage any of the women here to wear head coverings because we do not build our theology around one verse, one passage that seems to stand out in contradiction to the rest of Scripture. We don't build our theology on a single passage or two, especially when the entirety of Scripture paints a different picture. There was something specific happening in Corinth that was not happening everywhere else. Now, I would propose that the issue of women in church leadership is certainly more complex, it's more nuanced, but it fits broadly this same description. All throughout the Old and New Testaments, women take the highest forms of leadership that you can name. And you can listen to last week's sermon to hear more of those examples. They take the highest forms of leadership that you can name without an ounce of shame or, I wish it were otherwise, and we need to build our theology of women in church leadership, starting with the people of Israel, and then the church's actual example, the, the early church's actual example. That ought to be our foundation. But then we take these limiting passages into view and say, how can Scripture possibly square all of this? Like, what's, what do we need to learn, right? If Scripture seems to contradict itself, just like with the head covering issue, is there something we need to learn? And so uh, you look to cultural backgrounds. Sometimes I think half of my job as a preacher is simply digging into the cultural backgrounds, right? There's about 12 or 13 different major subjects that you can dig into to expound on a text. There's discourse analysis and linguistics and all this stuff. Half of my work is just explaining the culture, right? In, in this culture, they did this, and that's why this made sense. So if you, if you have liked that over the years, uh, I encourage you to buy a cultural backgrounds study Bible. I think the NIV has one, a cultural backgrounds study Bible. If you want one resource that really helps to sort of explain scripture, I think half of your work is done with a cultural backgrounds, study Bible or cultural backgrounds commentary. Okay, so come back to me here. So just like the head covering issue seemed bizarre, but once you, once you understand the culture, it makes sense. So I would say that when you're looking at all of these early church and, and uh, Hebrew women who were leaders, and then it says women can't speak in church, I would propose that it's the same kind of thing, that once you understand the cultural backgrounds, this all starts to become illuminated. So, let me explain this. 
If you go to a Christian church today in many parts of the Middle East, especially rural, undereducated churches, do you know what you'll find? You will find a church environment virtually unchanged from the early church, especially in like Bedouin and sort of um, uh, herding groups. One thing you'll be surprised to see is that all of the men sit on one side of the church, just like in a wedding. Is that right? The men are over here, right? So the men would all be on this side of the church, and just like the bride and the bridesmaids, all the women are on this side of the church in a medieval or in a uh, Middle Eastern church today. Many Jewish and Muslim gatherings do the same still to this day, and they didn't just invent that out of the blue. This is how it has been for thousands of years. It's quite normal, and we in the West, though we haven't done this for some time, it's quite normal. Now, put on your thinking caps. Imagine you are a woman in the ancient world. You live in an undereducated or sort of blue-collar area. And as a woman, you've been raised to work in the home and do chores in the village. Now, of course, there were some female leaders in the church, but as, as I said last week, the male literacy rate was somewhere between 5 and 10% in the Roman Empire. Uh, a female was less than one. So there's just a lot fewer roles for women in leadership, especially in religion, where reading and studying texts is such a part of the gig. So most women, their jobs were to just work in the home and do chores in the village and the market. And guess what language you speak as this ancient woman. You speak the local language, the sort of local dialect, the home dialect. And when those apostles arrive, those traveling teachers come through like Paul, guess what language they're speaking? They are speaking the global trade language dialect, not the local language, right? We all speak English. So at home, we speak the same thing that you read in the New York Times, so we don't quite get the distinction. In most of the world, before the printing press, the language you spoke at home, and still if you go to Africa or many other places in the world, the languages that you speak at home are sort of your home dialect. And then when you go out into the public sphere, you're speaking this big global trade language, right? So imagine if the language you spoke at home was different than the language in the New York Times. That's what the ancient world was like. So when Paul and these uh, major speakers would come through, they're not speaking the little local dialect that changes village by village. They are speaking Greek or they are speaking Latin. And they're not just using regular market Greek or market Latin, which a lot of these women would have known. They're using, let's say, upper high school or even college-level Greek. Not only do the women speak an entirely different language, or if they know some Greek, they're speaking uh, just their sort of local, like, homespun village dialect. They're not speaking this wide sort of college vocabulary. They haven't read Plato and all these other people, like Paul and a lot of the men, were fortunate enough to speak. So if you spoke a village dialect loosely related to a mother language and you weren't educated and some apostle comes through speaking a global trade language at a college level, how much do you think you'll understand? Let's think about that. How much do you think you'd understand? Pues si yo cambio al español en el medio del sermón, imagínense. Y si durante 10 minutos, 20 minutos, si yo sigo predicando y enseñando en español, Si ustedes solo estudiaron dos años del español, hace décadas, ¿por cuánto tiempo van a escuchar? ¿Durante cuánto tiempo van a prestar atención? Okay, so, that's weird. What did I just do there, okay? Besides the novelty of me speaking Spanish for 20 seconds, what just happened there? You got just a small glimpse of what the women heard when Paul and the other apostles would come through and preach. Maybe a language you know some of, maybe a language you, you studied a little bit of in school, but not a language that you know well. 
And so besides the novelty of me speaking a different language, like, well, that's interesting. I've heard this guy talk for hours in English and all of a sudden he's speaking Spanish. That's, you know, intriguing. But imagine if I just kept going for an hour or two, like the early church sermons were, in a language where you could only pick out one out of every 10 words, unless you're the Logie kids who go to a bilingual school, right? Imagine what that would be like, right? That would be very strange and you would get colossally bored, right? I'm here speaking in English every, every week and when my preaching gets a bit technical, you better believe I see eyes glaze over, right? When I, in English, when, I, when my preaching gets technical. And I say, even to my shame, that every rare once in a while, I see a head go like this, right? I see the fishing heads, right? Not too often, and I'm, I'm reminded to be encouraged that this even happened to Paul, that he was preaching late into the night, and there was a young man, probably a teenager, sitting in the window, and he was doing the same thing, bobbing, and he falls out of a window and he dies, right? And then they ended up reviving him if you guys remember that story. Uh, but even someone literally fell over sleeping and then fell out of a window and died during Paul's preaching. So I'm encouraged that even in English, this can happen. Now imagine just how colossally bored you'd get from a two-hour sermon in a language that you barely even understand. So what do you think you might do? All the men are over here. All the women are over here. The men are understanding quite a bit or most. The women are standing, understanding almost nothing. So women, you know, what do you think... Uh, you do. The preacher is likely not looking much at the women because none of the women are understanding. So all of like the nodding and the head bobbing and the sort of like, I'm with you is coming from this side of the room. And so this goes on for hours. And so the women are bored out of their skulls. They're not literate. They might speak some of the language, but not much of it. They don't have any education, let alone theological education. So what's fair? What's human? What do the women start to do? They probably begin whispering, right? Asking questions about the sermon at first, but then eventually just getting bored. The sermon goes on for an hour or two. They probably start chatting, right? They probably start telling stories about their day, stuff they're dealing with. And it's, at first it starts quiet. But as any teacher who's ever tried to manage a classroom knows, the whisper that starts small, right? Caleb is he's laughing over here. He gets me. The whispering that starts small in the corner soon enough turns into a full-blown, like loud conversation. You're trying to teach a class and like a quarter of the class doesn't even realize that they're in a classroom, right? And they're just talking. Uh, right? Am I, am I wrong here? This happens all the time. So uh, these women are bored, and they just start talking because they don't understand anything that's going on, and those whispers turn enough to turn into a full-blown conversation, okay? This is the backdrop of this uh, environment. And then whoever's preaching up front has to stop, okay? So think of this environment. Men here, women here. Women don't understand anything. They're bored. They're chatting and just sort of talking amongst themselves in the local dialect, and then the pastor stops. What does the pastor say? Now hear this again in this context. Ladies, please just be quiet in the, during the church service. I get this is long, you don't understand. But if you don't understand, later when you go home, ask your husbands and they will explain it to you because you don't speak the language, right? And, and you haven't been educated. Okay, you're sitting over here. I get you're bored. I've been up here for an hour. I'm speaking Koine Greek or whatever, and you don't understand. Just, just hold on with me for a little bit longer, okay? And go home. You can ask your husbands later, and they'll tell you what it was all about, okay? It still doesn't sound great to a modern ear, but do you see how that, you see how different that is? Do you see how that text all of a sudden opens up? Like, okay, they don't understand. They're bored. They're chatting because they're distracted. And he's saying, hey, all the men over here get it because they have had this sort of fortune of going to school and speaking Koine Greek and, or Latin or whatever it is and knowing what's going on. Go home and you can ask your husbands later because I'm sorry, but this sort of chatter, this sort of audible like 
all noise happening. It's, we can't have this in the church service. So just hold on for a little bit longer than ask your husbands at home. You see how that makes sense? When we, when we dive into the cultural backgrounds, it starts to make sense. It still will grate our ear a little bit when we read it, but we get the context of why it's being said. And it squares. It makes sense why the women who, who are able to lead and preach and teach and explain Romans and lead house churches were doing it. And there was no shame. There was no problem with it. But for the vast majority of women who didn't understand, who were sitting over here on this side and chatting, they were being asked to be quiet and go ask their husbands at home because they were interrupting the church service. So we don't have to fully dive into the other passage. We won't have time. That's 1 Timothy 2, and you can look that up. Uh, but it's likely a similar issue. It's, a, it's another issue. It asks women to keep silent. And it's a similar background thing that's going on. There's something called, I'm getting this from Scott McKnight, uh, you can look up... Uh, a category. It's called New Roman Women. It was sort of like a hyperfeminism movement uh, in the early church, uh, not so much in the church, in, in early Rome. And it's not like uh, first or second wave feminism. It would be like third wave feminism, where like men are purely evil and should never have anything to do with them, like that kind of feminism. Um, so these women would not marry. They would have relations with men, like paid men, uh, but if any resulting children were to happen as a, as, as, a, as a result, they would terminate those pregnancies with an ancient version of an abortion. They insisted on leaning, uh, leading in all arenas and would actively walk up to male teachers. This is funny. They would actively walk up to male teachers and step into like their lectern or their podium and just sort of like boot the male out and just take over. And so they were kind of trying to build this new world order of female leaders with men subservient, no marriage, no childbearing, just like a uh, sort of a matriarchal society without the motherly part of it. And Paul is like, no, I do not permit you to run up and take over a podium. I don't permit you to have authority over that man if the man happens to be the one preaching. I don't permit you to run up and take over a podium in church. And he's sort of uh, bringing them down a notch. He's like, because these, these sort of uh, new Roman women thought that women were the sort of the, the superior creature, right? Uh, and he said, no, 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 no. Women are sinners too, just like men. Don't forget, right, Eve in the garden, right? Women are sinners too. Don't spit on marriage and having children. God has designed that for the majority of his children, right? He tells us to be fruitful and multiply. So marriage and childbearing is good. It's not bad. So we, you can go look at 1 Timothy 2 later. We won't have time to get into both of these passages, but I wanted to give some of that context too, that Paul is likely pushing back against these new Roman, sort of new Roman women, these third wave feminists who are like, men are evil, marriage is evil, childbearing is evil, we don't want anything to do with it, we're going to have like a purely women-dominated society. And he's like, hold your horses, right? <laughs> hold your horses. So this is a tricky issue, and scripture seems, right, on, a, on an initial first reading, scripture seems to have it both ways. And evangelicals will often come from this, come to this the wrong way around. We see that women lead, teach, preach, and have authority over men, even in that ancient society where it was so incredibly rare. But then we read these verses and say, well, you know, see these two verses that say no, so I'm out. And then we sort of turn our brains off over the issue of women in leadership. We say these two verses say no, so I'm out. But the time for turning our minds off has come to an end. God tells us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if scripture has leading, as women leading in these ways, and then also telling women uh, not to lead in these ways, but while also having zero qualms about the very women who are leading in those ways, then it's not the scripture that disagrees with itself. 
it's maybe some work we have to do with our mind in loving God with all of our mind to figure out what's going on. Scripture is not just flatly contradicting itself from one verse to the next. There's something going on there, right? Scripture is written for us, but it's not written to us. It was written, in this case, to the Corinthians. So we have to dive into Corinth. We have to figure out what on earth is going on there. Because for it to make sense for us, we have to know how it made sense to them. You've got to know how it makes sense to them for it to make sense then for us today. Now, here's what we do understand. Build your theology from the entirety of Scripture, not from a proof text or two. Build your theology from the entirety of the canon of Scripture. Build your theology from the whole thing. We don't wear head coverings. We follow the example of the Jewish and Christian women throughout the Bible. We don't baptize on behalf of the dead. We follow the example of all of Scripture. And we follow the example of all of Scripture that women had every leadership post that you can name in the Old and New Testaments, and there was not an ounce of shame about it, and that it was welcomed, championed, and even commissioned by the same people who seemed to write these limiting verses. And if women had leadership roles during a time when society at large gave them almost no leadership roles, what does that say about the radical equality that was to be had in the early church and in Scripture? Maybe it actually felt like this when Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul wasn't just blathering. He actually meant this, right? And that's actually how it would have felt. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And we know something else, that we as a church are not to draw lines where Scripture clearly offers none. We as a church are not to draw lines where Scripture clearly offers none. If women all throughout Old and New Testaments enjoy literally every kind of leadership post that you can name, and then we encounter two texts that seem to directly contradict this, we do not divorce those texts from their context, right? We don't divorce those passages from what was going on around them and then throw away the rest of the Bible. You do not take those texts and lift them up as like what they call a canon within a canon. Like this is the true word and the rest of the Bible we're going to chuck because we like these two passages and we don't like the rest of the Bible. We don't divorce them from their context. We don't chuck the rest of the Bible away. We draw our theology, we build our theology from the entirety of Scripture, and we do not draw lines where the Bible does not draw lines. We as a church want to be what's called well-centered rather than wall-centered, right? You want to center your church around the well, the living water, who is Jesus Christ. Everyone in this church, this is part of the reason we founded this church, we have leaders on purpose with differing views about uh, things that are negotiable, right? Not about like the divinity of Christ, the resurrection on the third day, none of that stuff, but on issues like this, just exactly what salvation looks like with like some debates, Calvinism, Arminianism that you've heard about. I'm just, I don't even talk about that. I'm so tired of that. Um, but that, uh, women in ministry, all these different things, these are things that we can have differing opinions on, but we love each other in Christ, right? We are a well-centered church that's all about coming to the well of Jesus and dipping deep in that water. Some churches want to be wall-centered churches, right? Where they're very concerned about all the borders, right? They don't look too much to the well, they're really concerned about the borders, whether it's 30 yards or 60 yards or 90 yards out. They really want to know exactly where the wall gets drawn, right? Where, where do we dig the foundation of the wall? What kind of angle should we have on the wall? 
We're a little bit less worried about exactly every single inch of the wall parameter. Not to say that they're not important. We are a well-centered church, not a wall-centered church. And if the early church went against an extremely male-dominated society and championed and welcomed women prophets, expositors, church planters, leaders, and yes, apostles, then who are we to start drawing lines? So recognizing this, this is the application of this sermon, recognizing this, we are going to follow the New Testament as a church and as church leadership and follow the early churches and, and scriptures example. Just like the church welcomed and commissioned Junia, Priscilla, Phoebe, and Lydia, we will also welcome women to teach, preach, lead, correct, and shepherd both the men and women of this church. Uh, and so stay tuned, come back next week. This will be a first for us. We are going to be having um, a couple preach for us. Many of you will know uh, who they are. So we're going to have a husband and wife couple come and preach for us next week uh, because uh, many of you, and maybe even me, oh, no, no, I guess not. Uh, many of you have not had a woman preach for you before. And so I thought it'd be really cool to have this couple come in and preach together. We're going to follow the early church in this, but I thought as a, you know, I don't want to just toss people into the deep end if they've never had this happen before. So we're inviting this couple to come in and preach for us. Uh, and then that will sort of open us up to this early church practice. And then after that, we'd be glad to have uh, either the, the man or woman of this couple or any women here uh, preach as well for us. So with that, uh, that's the application of this sermon, that women are, are, are full uh, leaders, preachers, teachers, expositors in our church. With that, let me pray to close us and invite you guys to come downstairs afterward for refreshments. Sound good? All right. Father, we thank you so much that uh, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, but we are all one in you. And we thank you for this humbling and, and fascinating example that all throughout the Old and New Testaments, even though not as a 50-50 split, but certainly all of these leadership roles were filled by women and there was not an ounce of shame or uh, could there, would there be, you know, a man instead uh, stuff. But they were instead championed, commissioned, loved, and welcomed as equal leaders, preeminent leaders among the apostles. We pray that we too would humble ourselves and, and realize that we cannot build our theology on a, a passage or two divorced from their context, but that we build our theology from the entirety of Scripture. Help us to uh, recognize that you had both male and female teachers, preachers, expositors, correctors, uh, all sanctioning scripture and, and leading over men and women in the early church and in the New Testament, Old Testament. And we pray that we would follow that example well. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church, STP, or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com.